G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Last week, we were talking about Noah's Ark. We looked at what the Ark would have really looked like, how it was made, and how some aspects of the construction had special meaning. And even though we were supposed to be taking a break from our study of floods and warfare, we still found connections to that concept in ancient Assyrian depictions of maritime warfare. And there was that passage uh, you were reading, Tim, from that rabbinic commentary on Genesis, which was still making those connections more than 1,500 years later. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And I hope our listeners have been enjoying seeing these threads come together to build a concept that most people would never have had on their radar. And I can understand if there might be some pushback on this from people saying, well, yeah, but you went all over the ancient Near East and looked at Israel's pagan neighbours to get these ideas, connecting the flood with warfare, but where's the support from Scripture? And that's what today's episode is about. Hopefully that will come as a bit of a relief for people who have been looking for biblical support for this idea, but where do we look? Well, I really want to get into Ezekiel and also Revelation, but I think I'm going to save those for later because first I want our audience to see that it isn't just isolated to one or two prophetic schools or scribal traditions within the Bible. So you're saying there's a lot of this stuff? Yeah, there definitely is. And probably the most obvious place to start would be in the Exodus with the crossing of the Reed Sea. But I don't feel like doing that just yet. And by the way, I heard recently that Apple Podcasts will be offering transcripts of all podcasts that they host on their platform. All I can say is good luck with that because Apple can't even get dictation right, so I don't know how they think they're going to understand a couple of Australians babbling on about ancient Hebrew. <laughs> that sounds like a, uh, a recipe for disaster. Artificial intelligence is no substitute for the real thing. Well, I hope nobody's looking for real intelligence because they're just going to have to put up with us too. Uh, yes, good point. People have asked about transcripts in the past. My response to that question has been consistent. I'm going to eventually release a book, which will be a distillation of all these notes into something a lot more cohesive and readable. And given that my time is severely limited, I'm not interested in writing transcripts in addition to everything else I do on a day-to-day basis. When the podcast series is finished, I'll put the book together and it'll get released to the public. Anyway, let's look at the book of Amos. Amos is a great place to start because he uses an awful lot of cosmic imagery. When you read Amos, you're getting the full picture of what's going on in the heavens and the earth and under the earth, and he's well-versed in all the typical language used to convey those ideas. So once you have the mindset of the ancient Israelite author as a frame of reference, he's much easier to read. So we have a few passages from Amos to look at, and we'll start in chapter 5 and verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. 
So we had some interesting stuff there, and I won't spend too long on these passages, but I just want you to see the language of waters and the day of the Lord motif there in connection with the specific title of the Lord, the God of hosts, which is that military terminology we've been talking about, Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. It's pretty cool, but it's not exactly big flood kind of stuff. Does it get a bit more explicit than that? More explicit than the day of the Lord. Uh, well, yeah, it does. Uh, here's chapter 8 from verse 7. The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up entirely as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. All right, that's my like it. Yeah, so we're talking about a picture of the devastation of the land here, a complete chaotic overturning that leaves everything in ruins. Next, we'll have a look at another passage from chapter 9 of Amos, and this will be familiar to listeners who heard what I had to say on a previous episode about Jonah. That cosmic imagery is really coming to the fore here. So Amos chapter 9, verse 2, Though they dig into hell, thence shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, Thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn. And it shall rise up entirely like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It is he that buildeth up his stories in the heavens, and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. So we have a repetition here of that line from the previous passage in chapter 8. And in case there was any doubt in your mind as to the cosmic upheaval that occurs when something happens in the natural world, I think Amos has spelled it out quite clearly here in chapter 9 to say that the one who commands the heavenly host also controls the chaotic powers of the sea and uses them to do his bidding. That's an interesting passage here in chapter 9 because, again, it references the Nile flood, but in later rabbinic interpretation of this passage in Amos 9, the rabbis talked about this in connection with the judgment on the Tower of Babel and the destruction of it by water, which is an interpretation based mainly on wordplay rather than any direct reference to actual water or destruction. I did mention that last week. We'll definitely have to look at that one another time. And if anyone has a question about that, they can send it in. You know where? Giantanswers.com. Yeah, sure. Anyway, that's not bad for a first look at other places in Scripture where the judgment of God and warfare and devastation are combined with ideas and language connected with flooding. And as I said, there's plenty more where that came from. We have to keep in mind that the Bible is a product of ancient Near Eastern culture, and we expect it to be fully consistent with that in as far as it's compatible with the message that God is bringing to his people. Obviously, there are major parts of ancient Near Eastern culture that are entirely incompatible with God and his word, but this isn't one of those things. Let's read Isaiah starting in chapter 28. From verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valleys shall be a fading flower. And as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looketh upon it seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory, and for a diadem of beauty, unto the residue of his people, and for a spirit of judgment, to him that sitteth in judgment. 
and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. This is a good one because we have the northern kingdom about to be carried off into exile and it comes with the language of flood and once again that title of God as the Lord of hosts and more language of battle. And of course historically we know that the northern kingdom was conquered and taken into exile with not a drop of water actually present in the battle. There was no flood, there was no storm. This is all language used to describe the judgment of God being enacted as warfare. And it's not the flood like those Assyrians always talked about. It's not a reference to the story of Noah. But there is a reference to Noah in Isaiah, and we find it in chapter 54. Here's the passage from verse 8. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. This is interesting because this reference to the flood is intended to communicate the idea that this time of trouble that Israel is experiencing, and remember we're talking about the destruction of Samaria and the captivity of the ten northern tribes, will be temporary, and that the mercy of God can be relied on to preserve the faithful remnant as it was in the days of Noah. It also tells us that the flood tradition and the name of Noah were known as early as the 8th century to an Israelite audience. I might just say that the date of the later part of Isaiah isn't certain, and it may actually be significantly later than the life and ministry of Isaiah the prophet, but that's a story for another time. Anyway, did you notice that when I read from the King James, it says the waters of Noah, and yet most of the translations will say the days of Noah. The Hebrew there is actually the word ma'im, and it is not the word for days, it's the word for waters. It's actually the same when you read the Greek translation. You get the Greek word for waters and not the Greek word for days. I don't know about you, but I'm getting some serious red flags here. Yeah, that is a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, now if you read Matthew 24 and you see Jesus' reference to the days of Noah, and we have the Greek word for days there, not waters, then you have to ask if Jesus was referencing Isaiah using some other text that we don't have, or was Jesus not referencing Isaiah, in which case the text of Isaiah may have been mistranslated in light of the incorrect assumption that Jesus was making that connection to Isaiah. If Jesus means to make a connection to Isaiah 54, then he's talking about bringing comfort to the persecuted people of Judea on the basis that the trouble they're shortly going to experience would not last for a long time and God would remain faithful to them. That's the context of Isaiah 54, and that's what the author meant by bringing the story of Noah into that context. On the other hand, if Jesus is referring to Genesis 6 rather than Isaiah, then he's talking about an imminent destruction from which only a faithful remnant will be spared while others perish in their violence. And you might ask, why can't it be both? Well, I guess it could be both if that one word meant both things. But it's either waters or days, and the Hebrew and the Greek both agree on waters. So I'm going with Genesis 6 here rather than Isaiah 54. I think that makes more sense than assuming that Jesus was somehow modifying the passage in Isaiah or quoting from a manuscript tradition that we have no evidence for, especially since the context of Matthew 24 is a much better fit with Genesis 6 in terms of escalating hostilities and the coming war with Rome. Uh, here's another one just quickly from Isaiah chapter 59, from verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So just a quick one there, which again gives us military terminology and flood language in the same breath. And this time it's the bad guys who are the flood and not the good guys. I think that passage may be a reference back to Exodus 17, actually, in the defeat of the Amalekites rather than the Great Flood. We're not done with Isaiah yet, but we need to move on. Let's have a look at another prophet now, and we'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 46 from verse 1. 
the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Order ye the buckler and shield, and draw near to battle. Harness the horses, and get up, ye horsemen, and stand forth with your helmets. Furbish the spears, and put on the brigandines. Wherefore have I seen them dismayed, and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down, and are fled apace, and look not back, for fear was round about, saith the Lord. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape, and they shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this that cometh up as a flood, whose waters are moved as the rivers? Egypt riseth up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go up and will cover the earth. I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. Come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate, and made drunk with their blood, for the Lord God of hosts hath the sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Ah, love me some King Jimmy. All right, so the really good thing about all this stuff is that we actually have not just biblical evidence of the use of this kind of language with warfare and flood spoken of in the same terms, but also we can hang our hats on the historicity of the events, which, as I mentioned before, concerning the captivity of the northern tribes is real stuff that actually happened to confirm that the language of storms and floods was really used about these real events. So we're building up a bit of a catalogue of instances where this language gets used, and we compare that against uh, you know, real events, which helps us to understand how language gets used in real terms. That's right. And I want that to be really clear to our audience before we start getting into prophecies about future events, because it's the reliability of the prior prophecies that help us to see the reliability of those events that may yet be future. It doesn't do us any good to be looking off into the future and seeing this terminology without having a frame of reference for how to interpret it. And Jeremiah continues in the next chapter, like this. This is chapter 47, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines, uh, before Pharaoh smote Gaza. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, the waters rise up out of the north, and shall be an overflowing flood, and shall overflow the land, and all that is therein, the city, and them that dwell therein. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. I won't make any comment on current events here, but I did mention earlier the use of water to flood out Palestinian terrorists from tunnels in Gaza, so I'll just leave you with that there. When the Egyptians did that to Palestinian terrorists, they actually did it with sewage rather than the way the Israeli Defence Force did it with water. That's, uh, that's gross. Yes, yes it is. Anyway, I mentioned a moment ago the perils of not having the right frame of reference for interpreting this language, and nowhere is that more evident than when we look at the historical destruction of the city of Nineveh. Here's a passage from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Now, for a very long time, people had conflicting views about what happened to the city of Nineveh because there was a tradition that the city had been destroyed by a flood and yet no evidence of flooding was found and people were debating endlessly about whether the natural courses of nearby rivers had been diverted to cause the catastrophe or if it had been a natural event. And and nobody knew what was going on there. 
the argument against the naturally occurring flood was quite strong because the topography of the region was all wrong. You'd have to have water flowing uphill, that kind of thing. And, of course, you had your typical biblical apologist arguing against the science for the literal interpretation and bringing that back to the book of Jonah and all that kind of thing, trying to make connections there, which is ironic because the book of Jonah is about the sparing of Nineveh due to the mercy of God. Don't you find that annoying when people just deny reality so they can support their interpretation of the Bible and you know that they're not even reading it right in the first place? Oh, yeah. Just go back to the first season of this podcast. Don't get me started. Anyways, you probably guessed by now, all these difficulties melt away into nothing when you realise that the terminology of flood is used to describe military actions. If you want to read a bit more about that particular situation, I can recommend to you a good short academic piece on that. It's called On Floods and the Fall of Nineveh, a note on the origins of a spurious tradition. It's written by C.L. Crouch, published by the University of Nottingham, accessible for free online. This actually forms part of the bibliography of my book, Answers to Giant Questions. All right, so I just wanted to clear that up before we start moving into other prophetic materials that project us further forward in history, because we're going to get into the book of Daniel next, and specifically chapter 9, verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. This is a fairly well-known passage. You don't need to be a genius to figure out that it's talking about the advent of Christ and the imminent destruction of Jerusalem shortly after his resurrection. We actually have a really good chronological link there that works not only within the literature, but using external historical reference as well. What is unfortunately less well-known is that we don't have any evidence that Jerusalem itself ever experienced the waters of a flood. Like, ever. But we do have abundant historical evidence for what did happen to Jerusalem shortly after the time of Christ. Because the siege of Jerusalem and its destruction in AD 70 are very well documented. And that was carried out by the Roman army, not a freak wave that somehow managed to achieve thousands of feet of elevation and then burned the temple down with water. How does that work? In fact, the scriptures are quite clear that the abomination of desolation is actually referred to as the surrounding of Jerusalem by the armies of Rome. The parallel in Daniel right there in that verse that we just read gives us flood and war in the same breath. And backing that up isn't really hard at all. Let's read from Luke 21, then we'll go to Matthew 24. Luke 21 verse 20, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Matthew 24:15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, so we've got a pretty clear connection there between Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, which is in parallel with Luke 21. But to really bring it home, of course, we need to keep reading in Matthew 24. So let's go to that famous passage from verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Now I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's not good to be the people who get taken in this context. They're prisoners of war, likely to be executed. You don't want to be those guys. You want to be the faithful remnant and get left behind. See what I did there? I see that, and I am going to make no comment. Wise man. 
So the first and only time that we have the explicit connection between warfare and the great flood of Noah's day is from the mouth of Jesus when he predicts the fall of Jerusalem under the Roman Empire. And again, our historical grounding on this is very secure. And again, we know that the destruction of Jerusalem came by fire, not by water. But I'm sure there are going to be some people saying that they can't be talking about the same thing then. For a lot of people, the time known as the days of Noah that Jesus is talking about is still in the future today. Yeah, that's a pretty common interpretation. But then a lot of people will hold to a duality of fulfillment there, which sort of gets them off the hook. They'll say that any differences between the prophecy and the fulfillment indicate that there would be a second fulfillment later that fills in all the gaps. Can't really rule that out. Okay, okay. Now, now this is all very well, talking about physical battles with human armies, but what about all that cosmological stuff? What about the spiritual armies in the heavens and the great deep? If you're going to tell us something like that is going on in the flood story, then it would be good to be able to back that up. Do we have any examples of that kind of thing in the Bible? And there was war in heaven. Let's go to Revelation 12 from verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay, so this first portion of the chapter gives us astronomical observations which enable us to calculate the date of the advent of Christ right down to an accuracy of a few hours. If you want some more information on that, I'd recommend that you read a book by Dr. Michael Heiser called Reversing Hermon. He does a really good job of explaining how that works. I just mention it here because this gives us the historical timestamp for when this is supposed to be happening. We haven't slipped magically back into prehistory here. There's nothing to indicate that we're reading something from before the dawn of time, as some interpreters will suggest. Some people think this is the passage that describes the fall of Satan prior to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, but understanding these signs in heaven as astronomical observations actually pinpoints the date of the birth of Jesus Christ as the 11th of September in the year 3 BC. That date would have fallen on the same day as the Feast of Trumpets that year. It's the same day of the calendar year when kings used to be inaugurated in the kingdom of Judah, and it lines up perfectly with the historical information given in the Gospels for the timing of the birth of Messiah. It also lines up with Noah's birthday. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, I'll continue with the reading from verse 5. And she brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Obviously, we're talking about Jesus here and the people of God under persecution in the days following his resurrection. And this is the bit where we get told about what's going on in the heavens at this time. From verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this is what happens at the resurrection of Christ when the devil is defeated and the legitimacy of his role as the accuser of the people of God is revoked. He no longer has any authority to accuse those people who are faithful to Christ. However, that does not prevent him from persecuting the people of God, which we see as we keep reading a bit further down. 
from verse 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that flood reference there? You don't really think that the devil spewed out lots of water from his mouth, right? This is a flood of military violence instigated by a supernatural entity designed to attack and kill the people of God on the earth. There it is. So is the flood actually the attack of the Romans against Judea? Well, I can see how that works with Daniel's flood that he talks about, but I also think it's been ongoing since then and continues today. Anyway, now I want to go back into the Old Testament. Let's read Psalm 29. This is where it gets really fun. I'm going to break in here and there with some comments. The title of this psalm is The Voice of the Lord in the Storm, and it's a psalm of David. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. That's verse 1. I'll give you one guess what that word mighty is supposed to say if you translate it correctly. The Hebrew there is elim. That's God's. Very clearly, I mean, that word translates as God's all day. There's no denying it. This is an address to the divine council. Let's keep reading from verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. All right, so then we have this language of waters, which you'll know if you've been following the podcast for some time as a reference to divine powers. From verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. So the language shifts here from the cosmic waters to the cedars of Lebanon, which is another common expression for the divine council. You find that in other ancient Near Eastern literature as well. For example, the Epic of Gilgamesh. That name Syrian there is a Sidonian dialectic variation on Hermon, which we know from elsewhere in Scripture and, of course, the Book of Enoch. So we've got this cosmic mountain language, which ties in with the other motif here, the flames of fire. Again, that's a divine council reference in keeping with stars or fiery stones, as you might see elsewhere. And what is the Lord doing in this passage? He's laying down the law. He's making it clear who's on the good side and who's on the bad side. He's putting the frighteners on Lebanon and Syrian. They're so scared of Yahweh that they run away like a frightened puppy. Let's read the last part now. And there's one word that I will not translate, but I'll explain why in a moment. From verse 8, the voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to carve, and discovereth the forests, and in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. The Lord sitteth upon the Mabul. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. All right, now we're getting down to business. That's the end of the psalm. 
there was that word there in verse 10, which I did not translate. We've talked before about the language of sitting and how the implication there is that sitting is akin to judgment. But what is God sitting on or judging over? That's what we really need to get at. This is kind of spoiled if you're sitting at home with your Bible open and following the reading in English, because you're going to see a word there that has already been misappropriated elsewhere. And that's going to color your judgment of how the word ought to be used. Before I offer a translation, let's just consider the context in which this word is found. And by that, I mean the historical context. This is a psalm attributed to King David. He lived about the 10th century BC, so we're at the dawn of the first millennium before Christ. This is a good 400 years before the exile. So this piece that he's written has absolutely no dependence on the completed form of the Hebrew scriptures that arose from the post-exilic period. He's never heard of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel. He's had little, if any, exposure to classic Mesopotamian literature. And we've already seen how heavily dependent the primeval history is on that Mesopotamian background for its ultimate formation. I'm telling you this because I want you to realize that his choice of words is absolutely not influenced by a reading of the primeval history as we know it. So when he uses this one word in particular, he doesn't do so with the story of Noah as his point of reference. And if it were not for the fact that David has chosen to use this particular word on this particular occasion, just this one time, we wouldn't find it anywhere in the Hebrew Bible at all, even in these early chapters of Genesis. The terminology used here in Psalm 29 is technical. That word mabul is very specific. In fact, it is so specific that this word occurs absolutely nowhere else except in the story of Noah. And that should tell us a profound truth about what the usage of the word brings to bear on its meaning. If the only appropriate term in the context of Psalm 29, which is all about God's supremacy and judgment over the divine counsel, is this word, then it says a lot about what's going on in the context of Noah's day where we find it used there. So what does that word actually mean Mm. I like to say that meaning is determined by usage. Look at how a word is used and you'll get the meaning, but that can be hard when a term is glossed over so consistently that you can't get under the surface of it. And, and that's why you're going to find, particularly in the creation science camp, that most people think this word is a reference to a global flood. It's obviously not that in Psalm 29. The value of Psalm 29 for our purposes here is that it gives us that little peek under the covers of the language and allows us to see what's going on with the use of that terminology outside of the story of Noah. Because it's the only instance that isn't explicitly a reference to that same narrative. And that means that you can't say that this word refers to a global flood because that isn't what's happening in Psalm 29. Let me just clarify it for you. Here is every occasion, there are 12 of them, where that word mabul appears outside of Psalm 29. Genesis 6, verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Note the contrast there between waters and flesh. Now here's Genesis 7, verses 6 to 7. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. All right, this, this one actually reminds me of the Exodus where the Israelites went inside their homes because the destroyer was coming to kill the firstborn. Now let's go to Genesis 7 verse 10. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. 
That's an interesting one because that phrase, the waters of the flood were upon the earth, as were or maybe came in your translation, but it's perfect tense. It's the same in verse 6, actually. They came into being. They were made manifest. It's not the beginning of rain. It's the completed arrival of the waters of the flood. Like they turn up that very day and that action is completed on that day. Genesis 7, verse 17, And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. Now, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, that's all I'm saying for now. I'll let you marinate in that one in your own time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, don't spoil it. We'll come back there another time. Genesis 9, verse 11, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, we have that intentional contrast between the waters and all flesh. This covenant is the language of military terms. God is telling Noah that he's on the same side against everyone else. And here it is again, Genesis 9:15. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. These last occasions that we're going to read, it just references to the event earlier, but so you can see that, we'll read them anyway. As you know by now, I like to show you every example of technical terminology so you can see that I'm using it consistently. So this is Genesis 9.28, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Genesis 10.1b, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Genesis 10.32b, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Genesis 11.10b, Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. So that's it. That's every reference outside of Psalm 29, and they're all in the context of the flood story in Genesis. Now, I'm not saying that you should use the one instance to understand the meaning of the other 12. I'm saying that using the appropriate cultural lens, it should be apparent from the usage of these 12 instances that the 13th, found in Psalm 29, is consistent with those. It's just hard for us to see it that way when we've been born and raised in a tradition ignorant of the original Hebrew terminology behind the text. We've spent all this time assuming the priority of the Genesis flood narrative over the psalm and ended up steamrolling the text of Psalm 29 with the unavoidable conclusion driven by the misinterpretation of the flood narrative. What's going on here is that the technical terminology found in Psalm 29, which should be read consistently in the flood narrative, has been transformed into an idiomatic expression in Hebrew, and we've had that idiom translated into English rather than the technical terminology behind the whole thing in the first place. Okay, so I get the idea that this has something to do with divine beings, but what is it about this word specifically? What is the author trying to say? You've got to throw me a bone here, mate. All right, so... For that, we're going to have to dig into some word study and pick apart the roots of that word, mabul. We don't have a lot to go on, but there are definitely connections to the idea of flowing or movement being led along in a kind of procession of entrance into a place. That's what we get from similar Hebrew terms based on the same root, and that idea also has connections to military situations where the winners of the battle will lead captives in their train and bring them home to be slaves. Another military connection possibly associated with this term is the Assyrian word nabalu, which means to destroy. That's one of the reasons why I hearkened back to the destroying angel in the Exodus when I was reading those passages from Genesis 7 earlier. We're going to see how all this comes together shortly. Now, let's see what happens when we take the opposite of this word. What about if we talk about leading out instead of leading in? Where are we going to find that in the scriptures? Let's go to Job chapter 38, verses 31 and 32. 
Can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Now, I was being very intentional earlier when I started out reading from Revelation 12 with the signs in heaven because I want you thinking about the stars and the way that they were used in ancient Israel. What I'm saying here is that Psalm 29 and Job 38 both use the language of a procession of divine beings represented by stars or flames of fire. In Job, they're being led out, and in the psalm, they're being led in. And I think what's happening in the flood story is that divine beings are being led into some place. That reminds me very much of the language in Amos chapter 9 that we were looking at before about God bringing them down from the heavens. And I think they were being brought down to the earth, but more specifically the sea, the great deep. And what makes you think that? Well, that passage in Job mentions certain constellations, in particular the Pleiades. That constellation gets mentioned in Amos as well. It just so happens that the flood story, if you plot it on a calendar using the dates mentioned in the story of Noah, coincides with that time of year during which that particular constellation descends so low in the sky that from the perspective of Israel and all the lands to the east of there, including Babylon, it disappears below the horizon of the Mediterranean Sea for a period of 40 days. At least that was true of the time of the Jewish exile in Babylon, which, as I've mentioned many times, is most likely the date of the final composition of this whole narrative. I'm getting some of what I'm talking about here from an academic paper on this stuff written by Ellen Robbins uh, from Johns Hopkins University. The paper is called The Pleiades, the Flood and the Jewish New Year, and it was published back in 1999. Uh, again, you can get it online for free. As you know, the stars shift over time so that cosmic alignments can be traced back to different periods in history. That's what I was talking about when we were looking at that passage in Revelation 12 and the way we could figure out that it coincided with the birth of Christ on Tishri 1 in the Jewish calendar. And in the same way, we know that during the period of the exile, it would have been possible to witness the descent of the Pleiades into the sea at that time, corresponding with the particular dates in the Jewish calendar that appear in the story of Noah. During that period of the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, the seven sisters had descended into the depths. Just to be clear, we're talking about observable phenomena at the time of the exile, when this story was being told. It doesn't give us a date for the flood. Now, I'll tell you something else about the Pleiades. That constellation gets its name from the Greek terminology related to sailing. And the idea is that during that time of year, when you can see the Pleiades, it's okay to go sailing because you'll have good weather. But when the seven sisters cannot be seen because they sink below the horizon, that's the time of year in which the worst storms happen and you shouldn't go out on the water. Now, there are countless traditions about the constellation of the seven sisters. You'll go mad trying to reconcile them into a single authoritative story. But I'll tell you a few things about that constellation that you might find interesting. You might be aware that Nimrod, the hunter, is represented in the constellation known as Orion. And the constellation of the Pleiades is visible in the sky, appearing as though the stars are fleeing away from him. In Jewish tradition, two stars out of the seven did not reappear after the 40-day descent of the Pleiades. And they were believed to be two of the most notorious divine rebels, Uzzah and Azazel. You might remember them from when we were talking about the Enoch tradition last season. Sometimes you can't see all the stars there, especially at the time of year when they're first becoming visible. So that's why you get stories where some of them go missing. And those stories tend to merge with stories about the interaction of gods and humans after the flood and the reappearance of giants. The Greek legend goes that Orion pursued the seven sisters through the sky after they were all turned into stars. What a lot of people don't know is that there's a tradition that he was believed to have captured at least one of them. That star is the faintest one of the constellation of the Pleiades, and her name is Merope. 
That's a really interesting name because it happens to be the very same word from which the Greeks derive their dialectic variation of the term Rephaim. In other words, there's a traditional story in which Orion, a.k.a. Nimrod, captures one of these seven celestial beings and their offspring become known as the Meropes or Rephaim. And of course, the Rephaim are the giants that appear after the flood, according to biblical tradition. The stated reason for the faintness of that one particular star is because her glory was diminished after she co-mingled with a mortal. Now, we already have these traditions from ancient Mesopotamia in the form of the Anunnaki mythology, where the divinized king Enmerkar draws on the wisdom of one of the seven sages that existed before the flood. In Mesopotamia, the constellation of Orion was known as the shepherd of Anu, the good shepherd. Now, I'm not saying there's a connection between Nimrod and Jesus by any means, but it's interesting that the floodwaters dry up on Noah's birthday, which is the day of the coronation of kings. And following that, the Pleiades reappear and the shepherd appears in the sky. So that says a lot for readers of Genesis and Revelation who know their astronomy because they're now able to look back on Noah as a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Jesus then functions as the new Noah who's heralded a new creation because they're born on the same day of the calendar year. And he really is the good shepherd, unlike that imposter in the Babylonian mythology. That's amazing, and I bet we could talk about that for hours. No idea. Anyway, the point of bringing all this up was that there's still been some considerable disagreement about what exactly was going on with the rising and setting of the Pleiades during the time of the flood, because two prominent rabbis who spoke extensively about this disagreed on what time of year it was that the constellation became invisible. You have one arguing for the descent of the Pleiades at the beginning of the flood, and the other argues that it rose at the end of the flood. Now, there's only supposed to be 40 days between the setting and the rising, not a whole year, as the flood story would indicate if you take it literally, assuming it doesn't rise and set again over the course of the year like it normally would. Since the rabbis talk about a great cosmic upheaval that occurred at the time and the celestial bodies abandoning their proper places, it would seem that looking for some kind of cosmic cataclysm would solve that dilemma, but before we rush to consult pseudo-archaeologists and science fiction mythologists, let's remember what we're reading here. We're not about to go along the lines of Eric von Daniken, Graham Hancock, or Emmanuel Velikovsky on our poor listeners. This is poetic literature. All these elements have symbolic meaning. We're not really talking about seven stars. We're not really talking about seven Greek women. We're talking about the Babylonian Apkalu tradition by relating these seven divine beings to astronomical phenomena. That's the upheaval of the cosmic order. It's the rebellion of those divine beings that's thrown everything into chaos. So it doesn't matter which of those competing rabbinical views you want to take on the rising or setting of the Pleiades, both can be true because we're not looking for the historical movement of the stars. We're reading a story. And the story tells us that divine beings descended to earth contrary to their ordained function, and they caused chaos and violence on the earth before they were led in procession back into the sky. This is fascinating stuff, but you mentioned earlier that you had some Bible passages um, you were saving for later on. Do you want to talk about those now, or are you going to play coy? Sure, let's go to Ezekiel. We're winding back the clock a bit here, because we went from pre-exile to post-exile and back to the flood. And Now we're coming back to Ezekiel, who writes during the period of the exile. This is the pronouncement of judgment on Tyre. This is Ezekiel 26, from verse 19. For thus saith the Lord God, when I shall make thee a desolate city, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I shall bring up the deep upon thee, and great waters shall cover thee, when I shall bring thee down with them that descend into the pit with the people of old time, and shall set thee in the low parts of the earth in places desolate of old, with them that go down to the pit, that thou be not inhabited, and I shall set glory in the land of the living 
I will make thee a terror, and thou shalt be no more. Though thou be sought for, yet shalt thou never be found again, saith the Lord God. So this is pretty much part of the course now. Flood waters, the deep, all this other cosmological language used to describe military destruction upon the city of Tyre, which was eventually brought down in 332 BC by Alexander the Great. Perhaps it's even more significant that Tyre was in fact a city built on an island and it was the security afforded by the waters that made them so secure. That's ironic, don't you think? A little too ironic. Yeah, I really do think. You might have noticed that the city of Tyre still exists today, but it's not on an island. Don't get all technical with me and say it's a peninsula. It was the armies of Alexander the Great that turned the island into a peninsula so they could conquer it. They literally just walked into the water carrying rocks until they made a land bridge. So it wasn't a flood that destroyed Tyre. It was rocks. But we need to talk a bit more about Ezekiel. Going back to the early episodes of this podcast, I stressed repeatedly that the language of the primeval history owes a lot to the specific vocabulary of the prophetic school of Ezekiel, and we're going to see as we continue that Ezekiel was the inspiration for much of the work of John the Revelator. So the biblical canon from beginning to end bears the fingerprints of the prophet Ezekiel. But we're getting out of word study and into the territory of themes and foreshadows. Now, we're going to see interesting parallels between the flood and the Gog-Magog war, which, of course, plays into how we read Revelation as well. But before we get that far, we need to see what Ezekiel does with the story of the flood. And that means we're going to talk about another ancient Near Eastern epic, which was influential on Ezekiel and also on the received form of the Genesis flood story. Let's talk about the epic of Era and Ishum. Don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah, it's not very well known. The Era epic is not a creation story. It's an exploration of warfare in Mesopotamia that depicts both the glorification and the horrific reality of warfare. It's a big text, so I'm not going to read it, but what you need to know is what it has in common with the writings of Ezekiel and the Genesis flood tradition. Firstly, we have the presence of a character who provides a cautionary message against choosing violence. That's Ishum in the epic. In Ezekiel, it's Ezekiel himself. In the flood, it's Noah, the preacher of righteousness. Also, we have violence used as the means by which the hubris of humanity is curtailed by the god. For Era and Ezekiel, that's explicitly warfare, which is sometimes described as a flood. In Genesis, the flood is the warfare. The judgment upon the individual is deemed to be a result of individual sin. This is stated explicitly in Era and Ezekiel and implied in the earlier context of the Genesis flood. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. The violence is considered to be universal. In every story, there's the idea that the whole known world is at war. The flood story presents this as Noah alone found righteous while the flood covers the whole land. There is some kind of association with a group of seven divine beings that herald destruction. In Era, it's the Sebetu, literally the seven. In Ezekiel, it's the seven executioners in chapter nine. And in the flood, it's the constellation of the Pleiades, seven stars or divine beings, implied by the specific dates and periods of their descent and rising. There's an upheaval of the cosmic order. Era and Ezekiel present this as the new order brought about by military devastation. In the flood, it's implied by God's promise that henceforth the times and seasons will carry on without ceasing. Sacred space is preserved from the ravages of a flood, sparing a remnant of the population. In Era, that's the religious center of the city of Sippar, Ezekiel presents it as Jerusalem, and in the flood, it's the ark. It's the intervention of a god that results in the remnant being spared. Marduk spares a remnant of the Babylonians. Yahweh preserves a remnant in Ezekiel, and of course in the flood, he spares Noah and those with him in the ark. Another parallel is 
in that violence and warfare are not viewed positively, but are seen as grievous and lamentable. That should be fairly obvious, but it is unusual for a Babylonian epic. And there are more parallels as well, but we're running short on time here. All this is to say that just as we talked about previously uh, about how so many Mesopotamian stories and poems and epics were influential on the biblical authors, so too the epic of Era and Ishum provided a framework for polemic in the mind of Ezekiel. And whether you read the book of Ezekiel or the flood story here in Genesis, you'll see the same correlations as we've just pointed out. This is all focused on warfare as the tool of God for the judgment of the violent, giving them over to the ultimate end of their own inclinations. There are lots of examples in the Bible where God gives the people what they want as a judgment against them, so I guess it isn't surprising to see that at work in the flood. You want battle? You got battle. Yeah, so with that in mind, it shouldn't be surprising that Ezekiel portrays the ultimate final battle in chapters 38 and 39 as a flood of violence that brings the violence of God's enemies against themselves. This is Ezekiel 38 from verse 21. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, we already know about Ezekiel's familiarity with Noah. He references Noah in chapter 14. And as I mentioned a moment ago, that's in the context of individual responsibility for either sin or righteousness. That's in keeping with the theme that carries through from the era epic and is seen in Noah's righteousness in the flood story. Let's just look at that now from Ezekiel 14 verse 12. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, If a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its people and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Danel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through that country, and they leave it childless, and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beasts, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword against that country and say, let the sword pass throughout the land, and I kill its people and their animals. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my wrath on it through bloodshed, killing its people and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Danel, and Job were in it. They could save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. And Ezekiel goes on to say this in chapter 18 from verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. So the message is consistent not only from Ezekiel, but from error and even from Atrahasis. In Atrahasis, it says, exact your punishment from the sinner. So we have this common thread throughout the history of flood epics that repeats this idea that those punished by war are not receiving the judgment of their fathers or their nations or their gods they are receiving the punishment for their own sin. So this doesn't even have to be spelled out explicitly in the flood story because it's part and parcel of that whole cultural framework. 
mean, you see it coming through the way Noah's spared because of his righteousness while everybody else gets what's coming to them. But it's not explicitly stated because it's implied. This is common knowledge in that culture. At this point, it might be a good idea to remind our listeners of what we've been talking about for the last six seasons of the podcast in that the story of mankind to this point has been a collective story about humanity as the common man. We got introduced to the man very early in the piece and we journeyed through the story of the fall and then we watched his children spiral into destruction and then we saw his genealogy where we were led inexorably to the person of Noah. And Noah became the new Adam, but he did it without becoming the man because the man is outside the boat getting drowned in this deluge of water against spiritual powers of destruction. The man is getting judged for his own sins, as Ezekiel describes. The man is getting smashed by the gods in the Atrahasis epic. The man is falling victim to the seven deadly weapons of error in the Babylonian story. It's not good to be the man, but Noah is not the man. And thank God for that. Yes, indeed. Thank God for that. And thank God that we've run out of time. So we're going to have to leave it there. Yeah, we were starting to run a bit long there. Still plenty more I could say about all this, but I think I've made my point. The Bible's full of this kind of language that describes cosmic warfare in terms of great flood. And now that you've seen it, you're going to notice it more often in your own reading, which means that my work here is done. Let's have some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. All right, well, you can't have answers to giant questions without occasionally having questions about giants to be answered. So Greta asked in the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook, what is the difference between Kenites and Nephilim? Okay, so unfortunately we don't have a lot of time left, so I'm just going to be brief with this one. I think I'll just frame it like this. How do we know that the Kenites are not the same as the Nephilim? Okay, that sounds like a good idea. How do we know that the Kenites are not the same as the Nephilim? Well, let's start with category distinctions. The Nephilim are explicitly said to be the product of unions between divine beings called the sons of God and mortal women in the period prior to the Great Flood. The word Nephilim, as I've laid out in great detail previously on the podcast, simply means giants, which explains why in Numbers chapter 13, the Israelite spies report having seen the Nephilim in the Promised Land. The spies do not report having seen the Kenites in the Promised Land at that time. But we later find out that there is a population of these people known as Kenites in the land but nobody ever calls them giants. It's a popular assumption that those people must be part of the tribes of the giants because they turn up in parts of the land that was promised to Abraham alongside other people groups that were known to contain populations of giants. And you can see that in Genesis 15. I'm just going to read from verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. All right, so we get the name of 10 different people groups there. What a lot of people don't realize is that there's significant overlap between these groups. Some of these are the names of individual clans under their family heads. Some of these are broad categories of people who share a common culture or religion. Some of these are names for people who live in particular geographical regions, and you can have any number of combinations of these factors when you look at individual people groups that live in these areas, that participate in these cultures, and that come from those tribes and clans. And then as a subset of all that, you also have the giants themselves. As I've outlined in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, 
the actual giants are really just people who've completely sold out to the religion of the Amorites, to the point where their use of religious rituals and magic in order to gain power has left them devoid of their humanity. These are people who intentionally reject the image of God within themselves in preference to representing the gods of the nations. And that's what it means to be one of the Nephilim in the period following the flood. As for this people group known as the Kenites, the Bible actually speaks positively of them on several occasions. The father of Moses' wife was a Kenite. Then we have this from 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 15, verse 6. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Now that's about 400 years after the Exodus. And these people are still highly thought of by the Israelites. They're not the bad guys. See how King Saul separated them from the Amalekites, who actually were considered to be giants. The name Amalek actually derives from the Arabic word for giant. Now, it's possible that some of our listeners have come across a certain conspiracy theory about the Kenites, where they get connected to this long genealogical line of bad guys, from Cain, the brother of Abel, all the way to the Pharisees at the time of Christ. Any Gary Wayne fans out there? So in that view... Cain, who's the first human murderer and the son of the devil incarnate, has this family line that connects to the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Don't get me started on all that serpent seed nonsense, which I covered over two full episodes at the beginning of season four of the podcast. And somehow they survived the Great Flood and Nimrod's in there and all the giant clans get a mention, but especially the Kenites, because according to this theory, they're descended of Cain and that's why they have that name. They actually are pretty similar words in Hebrew. Then the Kenites have this offshoot group, which are the Gibeonites. And apparently these guys are giants, but they managed to fool Joshua and all the Israelites into thinking that they aren't. Like, look at our old shoes and moldy bread. We're obviously not eight feet tall. Oh, yeah, sure, that checks out. Anyway, since they tricked Joshua into making a treaty, he can't kill them, so they end up as slaves, cutting wood and drawing water for the Israelites. These guys managed to fly under the radar despite being giants for over 400 years, getting past the kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon had them helping build the first temple in Jerusalem. Then they apparently become scribes and work their way into the cultural and religious elites in Judea. Fast forward to Jesus' time, and he calls them sons of their father, the devil. I mean, this sounds great in theory. I mean, what an awesome conspiracy. Fancy being able to track a single bloodline all the way from the beginning right to the time of Jesus. Fancy thinking that genealogies actually work like that. Again, refer to my coverage of this topic in the first two episodes of Season 4 of the podcast. Then uh, listen to the rest of Season 4 and Season 5 and so on. Look, this doesn't work for so many reasons, not least of which is the fact that the connection between Cain and the Kenites is a purely literary connection. It's there to draw attention to the fact that Moses became a killer like Cain before he became obedient to God. This is something I go into detail about in my book. At the end of the day, the Kenites were allies with Israel more often than not, and we have no evidence that they were giants. So I guess that means that the main difference between Kenites and Nephilim is that the Kenites were not giants. Now, I will grant the possibility that some Kenites may possibly have become giants. Imagine you're pouring out a bag of corn kernels and you find a popped one. You don't infer from that discovery that all corn kernels are popcorn. Potentially, yeah, but actually, no. Giants occurred within various populations, but they didn't account for the whole population of any group unless they actually were giants and named as such in some way, so you can't tar everyone with the same brush. Anyway, I hope that's clear enough for you, Greta. Thanks for the question, and once again to all our listeners, please keep the questions coming in. Yeah, thanks, Greta, and remember, folks, you can also send in your questions anywhere you find us on social media or on our website, joinanswers.com. That's all for this week, and we'll be back next time with more answers to your giant questions.
see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions read the blog and catch us on the socials don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers we'll see you next time until then stay safe and god bless so just a quick one there which again gives us military terminology and flood language in the same breath yeah i'm gonna yawn with my breath you're going to tell us that something like that is going on in the flood story, then it would be good to leave to bap bap. Sorry, I've lost my place. Bear with me. I was uh, looking at eHarmony. <laughs> <laughs> the voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to carve and discovereth. There, King James. Well, I really want to get into Ezekiel and also Revelation, but I think I'm going to save those for later because first I want our audience to see that it isn't just isolated to one or two really loud noises in the background. Uh, I do need to grab something very quickly. You grab it. You know what it is, don't you? Eggnog? Hey. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, it's yes. back. Yes, uh, I stopped by the old uh, the old faithful uh, servo in uh, Quinana, the only place I can find that reliably supplies it. And I think they've noticed that I'm buying quantities because they've, like, doubled how much they hold. <laughs> One man can make a difference. That's right. That's right. There you go. Well, I rejoice with you, brother. I'm very happy.